Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thank you all so much for being with us again for another Political Rewind. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, Today on the show, we're going to start with looking at the announcement that Governor Kemp made uh, late yesterday afternoon, uh, saying that he is ready to start in a very limited way, opening Georgia back up for some businesses over a period of the next seven days. We'll talk about that and reaction to it. And then a little later in the show, we're going to talk about, we're going to look back in history and look at the uh, the uh, pandemic of 1918. Uh, Tamar Hallerman, the senior reporter for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution, wrote a great piece about it in the AJC on Sunday. And it's chilling to think about some of the parallels between what was happening in Georgia back then and what's happening right now. Um, uh, but before we get into our conversation, uh, let's give you the latest figures on what we know. The Department of Public Health last night reported that we now have 19,398 confirmed cases of COVID-19. That's up 909 cases in 24 hours, and 85 people have died of the disease in the last 24 hours. That brings us up to uh, 774 deaths, um, and and uh, in, in just the last eight days, 332 people have died of the disease. Um, all right, let's get started on the show. Uh, first of all, Tamar Hallerman, I'm glad to have you with us today. Um, we've been getting a lot of reaction. I'm sure you've been seeing it on social media. I'm getting it from our listeners who are sending me emails and posting on our Twitter account and all, to the governor's decision. We're going to talk to um, his press secretary in just a minute. But before we do that, let me just ask how you're holding up tomorrow. Not too bad at all. Nice to have a sunny, beautiful day outside. Yeah, it sure is. All right. Then with uh, without any more delay, let's introduce Cody Hall. He is Governor Kemp's press secretary and is joining us at the top of the show today. Cody, you said right before we went on the air, you're still commuting. You're still working down at the state capitol. What's it like down there these days? It's a little bit of a ghost town, um, but my drive has drastically improved. I live up in Dawsonville, so the used to be hour 30, hour 45 drive has now gotten to an hour or a tad bit less. So I'm enjoying that part of it. But um, there's a crew or a, a skeleton crew here at, at the state capitol working. So um, I'm one of the blessed few. Okay. Well, we appreciate your joining us today. Um, I think it's safe to say that there has been passionate response to Governor Kemp's decision uh, to first allow certain businesses to open uh, almost immediately as of Friday. We're talking about massage parlors, uh, cosmetologists, uh, hair cutters. Um, what am I missing, Cody? Who else is part of that first group? Gyms and fitness centers were the two main ones that um, I think you missed there. Okay. Um, here's So here's my starting point, my question. The, the governor said uh, in making this announcement that the uh, shelter-in-place rule was not going to be suspended or, uh, uh, or overturned. Um, 
and that he expected that Georgians would exercise precautions in how they went about their daily business. I've, how do you go to a massage therapist? How do you get your hair cut and maintain social distancing? I think people are, were confused, uh, if nothing else, about the way that was described. Sure. Um, so let's start off kind of first. Um, in the original April 2nd shelter-in-place order, there were a couple of different categories. Um, there were a list of businesses that were closed, which included the gyms, the fitness centers, the list that you just read off, Bill. There were two other categories. There were critical infrastructure, which are your manufacturers, your transportation workers, the people you would think of as essential or critical to the ongoing operations of a state or a country, and that's kind of defined by the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. Then there was a third category, which was for businesses to operate under a minimum basic operations standard, and we listed out in the executive order what a minimum basic operations means, essentially for you to be able to maintain the value of your business. Um, and then we listed out 20 different sanitation and social distancing guidelines for those businesses. So what the governor did yesterday was we took most of those businesses that were closed under the April 2nd order and moved them under the minimum basic operations. This is not business as usual for these businesses. Um, it's simply to allow some of them to do payroll um, for them to see a few clients if they're able to. Um, if they can practice social distancing, that's obviously um, a suggestion on our part. Um, the other, if they can't maintain a social distancing kind of guideline, like you just mentioned about maybe a barbershop, um, to wear masks or to wear protective equipment for them to be able to do that, maybe um, have. And we're going to be releasing more guidelines this week um, through DPH for these operations and these businesses. But, you know, having folks wait in the car, come in and get a haircut and then leave, those were some of what um, a lot of constituents were asking us to consider in, in moving these operations from absolutely closed by the government um, to a minimum basic operations. I'll give you a quick example, Bill. Um, my wife works at a gym. And under minimum basic operations, they're going to be able to bring in folks to shoot online classes to where um, their members can go online and watch classes um, and have more than just a couple of staffers in there to do those online classes. Um, so that's one of the things that they'll be able to do under minimum basic operations. So um, let me follow up and then give Tamara a chance to jump in here. I, uh, some of what the governor did um, presupposes that we are really on the, we now have a very clear fix on the virus, where it lives, um, how to contain it. And, and it suggests that we can begin getting back to normal, um, even though we don't have enough tests out there, I think I'm uh, right to say, um, we don't really know how much of the state may be infected because we don't have those tests. And we don't, and even if you do have a test, we don't know how quickly the results can be turned around so that you have a sense of people you may have come into contact with um, who, who maybe have, have a positive reading for the virus. My point being that your governor's decision is based on a lot of parts, things that are not yet in place to make sure we can contain what's going on. Sure. So um, the Department of Public Health 
posted on their website last night, and we'll start to update daily the gating criteria that the president's um, guidelines for reopening America um, were published on. So you'll be able to view those on on their website today. Um, I think, you know, to kind of back up a second and say that no choice made in any of this era of a pandemic that we're living in is easy. There are no easy choices. Um, everything has a cost benefit to it. Um, and as you look at this, there are some public health officials saying that, you know, we should wait till June or July to reopen the economy. There are some, um, like Dr. Toomey, that are saying that, you know, if, if we practice social distancing, if we, operate, if we open some businesses under a limited capacity um, to where they can at least start to pay some of their workers um, and continue as a state and as a country, to abide by social distancing, to make sure that we're sanitizing things that we can um, we'll sanitize for these businesses to be able to operate and to keep people safe, and that's what we should do. On, on testing specifically, um, the governor for the past two weeks has said that we're not where we need to be on testing. Um, yesterday, um, we announced that the Guard um, now has 10 um, mobile units that will be able to test, we believe, well, 1,500 tests a day. Um, we're continuing to ramp up our testing. Um, it is one of the main focuses that the Guard and DPH has been charged with by the governor. But then I think you can also step out and say that every state in the country does not have the number of tests that they would like. Um, so, again, you're in a cost-benefit analysis of if what is the number that we're going to be able to get to in testing that we feel comfortable um, moving forward. And again, that shelter-in-place order is still in effect until April 30th. Um, so we do have more days of, um, of folks abiding by that order while still allowing some of these businesses to open in very limited capacities to be able to do payroll, um, meet a few clients that they're able to while ensuring the, the safety of those clients as well. Oh, Who and then I did want to mention, tomorrow? oh, sorry, on, oh, on no, contact ahead, tracing, I'm sorry, um, on contact tracing, Dr. Toomey did um, mentioned yesterday that we are working with Google and Microsoft on apps that will allow her staff in coordination with the CDC staff that we will be able to acquire through their contact tracing teams um, to start to um, ramp up that um, in preparation for after the shelter-in-place order. I, I definitely have a follow-up for you on contact tracing, Cody, but I'm, I'm also curious, you, you talk about this cost-benefit analysis that the governor kind of had to make in terms of, you know, the decision to let businesses restart some basic operations versus continuing um, some of these stringent uh, restrictions. But why not wait a little bit longer um, for more testing to become available for, for more people? You have some public health, health officials or, or experts like Mark Lipsitch at Harvard who say, um, you know, you're only opening the door for a, a second wave to come that would be much worse. Yeah, so the governor has continued to make these choices informed by data and informed by public health officials here in the state by various models across the country that are made about um, what our peak was in terms of resources, in terms of cases, in terms of deaths. And, and all of that comes together to try to create a picture of, of where we can go as a state and how prepared we are. And um, in terms of the work we've done on bed capacity, we feel very strongly about um, where we are there, um, including the the 200-bed facility now at the Georgia World Congress Center. Um, and there is also a human impact of what we're doing, both on the public health side and on the economic side. I mean, we um, 
two weeks ago, Mark Butler, um, Commissioner Mark Butler at the Department of Labor, they processed the same amount of unemployment cases in a week that they did all of last year. Hundreds of thousands of Georgians are out of work. And as the governor said yesterday, worrying about how they're going to literally put food on the table for their families. Um, so again, there's a cost-benefit analysis here that um, we're not opening these businesses. We're not throwing them the keys and say, and saying, go ahead with business as usual. Again, if folks would read the order and go through what we've listed out, um, these are limited operations in order for these folks to maintain the value of their business, hopefully be able to see a, a few clients um, if they're able to ensure their safety and move forward. Tamara, you want to follow up? Yeah, I wanted to ask about contract tracing. You you mentioned uh, the state working with Google and Microsoft on on developing some apps, and and this is new. You know, we've heard um, Massachusetts is hiring a ton of folks to help with this. The city of San Francisco. We've we've seen a ton about contract tracing in Southeast Asia. Um, talk to us a little bit more about that. And and you know what Dr. Toomey described yesterday was a lot of medical students helping out, state employees who might be moved to kind of temporarily work on this. But but how big of a scale is this going to be? And does Georgia have a plan to, to really amp this up? You talked to people like former CDC director Tom Frieden, and he talked about, you know, a, quote, army of contact tracers. He was talking about 300,000 nationwide. What are our plans for Georgia, and, and will it be on the scale of, of what some of these public health experts want? Sure. So one thing to keep in mind in this is that contact tracing is going to be a priority for every state in the country. Um, and also, not only just in America, but also around the world, that we're, there's going to be a need and a demand for more contact tracing, just like there was a need and a demand for ventilators, just like there's a need and demand for testing. So we believe that um, relying heavily on technology through the Google and Microsoft apps that, that Dr. Toomey addressed yesterday, we're going to be relying, as you said, on those hundreds of volunteers that have signed up, whether it's med students or just retired medical workers that um, want to pitch in and help their state. Um, we're going to be relying on those and also our state employees. Um, luckily, Dr. Toomey, um, she told me yesterday that contact tracing should be her middle name. Um, <laughs> that's kind of something that she's worked on. Um, she was at the CDC, I think, for almost a year working on contact tracing. Um, she told me that she spent a summer at the World Health Organization working with them on their contact tracing guidelines worldwide. Um, so this is something that she's very knowledgeable about. Um, and feels confident that relying on technology um, and also making sure that we have the workforce in order to um, get contact tracing done a a as much as we possibly can, she feels confident moving forward that we'll be able to do that. Um, but, but, but Cody, um, I think Tamar put her finger on it when she said um, what we heard yesterday from Dr. Toomey, from Governor Kemp, was, uh, yeah, we're going to make contact tracing uh, work. Yeah, we're going to have more tests in place without a great deal of specificity as to when all of this is really going to ramp up in a dramatic way. And so I think it's fair to ask, why are we in such a hurry to reopen? I, and I think one of the reasons that the context needs to be placed around that is that um, the governor was one of the folks out there, one of the governors, who was reluctant to put shelter-in-place orders uh, uh, in place in the, it, 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 at all. He, he was late to the game on that, and there's a sense in which now he's very eager to move forward. And let me just give you um, 
a some feedback from a couple of uh, uh, public health people. Some viro- in one case, uh, a virologist uh, Joshua White's at Georgia Tech wrote me a note in which he said. In brief, it can be true that we've, quote, turned a corner on the virus, unquote, and also true that the danger has not passed in any fundamental sense. Epidemics are different than tornadoes in a storm front. When the tornado passes, the danger has passed. But this is not how it works for a respiratory virus still spreading in an almost entirely immunologically naive population. And he goes on to say the governor's choice to relax shelter in place and replace that with intermediary measures means that the risk will go up for all likely disproportionately based on socioeconomic background, particularly on those unable to continue to work from home. Um, So he's suggesting that the governor's passion and let me give you a chance to respond to that. But but to put it in even more context, Tom Faust, let's listen to that third soundbite of the governor in which he talks about, he was asked a question of whether politics has anything to do with his decision. And on the other side, Cody, we'll let you respond to all of that. Well, I can tell you, I don't give a damn about politics right now. We're talking about somebody that has put their whole life into building a business that has people that they love and work with every single day working in many of these places that are at home going broke, worried about whether they can feed their children, make the mortgage payment. So, Cody, um, the governor seems very passionate about getting people back to work, and that makes sense. But are we jumping the gun? Sure. So, again, um I would say a a little bit of what I've set up until now, that um, the governor continues to rely on data and public health officials. um, And just to clarify with the the point you read off from the virologist, our shelter in place is still in effect until April 30th. And the other thing I would say is that um, one of the aspects of this that I don't believe has been covered a lot, um, the chair of the National Governors Association, Governor Larry Hogan, has um, put in a request to the White House and to Congress to approve $500 billion worth of aid to state and local governments as we move forward. Um, states like Georgia cannot run a, a deficit. Um, June 30th um, is the end of our fiscal year. And all of these states are going to have to be making a decision about how they move forward um, because, as we saw with Hurricane Michael funding, relying on Congress um, 100% to approve the funding in the face of a disaster is not always a sure bet thing. So whenever states look at their balance sheets going up to the end of the fiscal year and moving forward into fiscal year 2021, there's obviously going to be considerations on that end of the scale as well. But um, again, there is no playbook for this. Um, and and um, there are some public health officials um, on one side of the issue. There are others on the other side of the issue. What I would say is any elected official has to weigh these competing interests. Not only do do we have to ensure the the safety and the well-being of the public, um, but we also have to take into consideration, um, like the governor said, those small business folks that maybe employ two or three people in an office building that um, they've known them for years, and those and their employees are literally worried about whether or not they can feed their kids next week because either unemployment is taking weeks to come through, um, SBA loans are taking um, longer than than some folks can hold on. Um, those are also considerations that not just Governor Kemp, but governors 
um, and the president are taking into consideration across the country. Cody, I, All right, I we're going to have to let you go in a minute, sure. but I know tomorrow. Yeah, go ahead tomorrow. <laughs> sure. Um, I wanted to ask you about the, the governor's decision to bar cities and towns from enacting stricter controls. Um, why not allow for more local control, especially if there are mayors who are nervous that their communities are, are at more of a threat for transmission right now? Sure. I love this question um, because at the beginning of this, when we initially did our shelter in place order, or I'm sorry, not the shelter in place order, but our March 23rd order, which um, sheltered in place the elderly and medically fragile, um, there were calls across the, the state from mayors and local officials for the governor to take statewide action so that well, we would not have a hodgepodge or there were county commissioners and mayors saying, well, there's no leadership from the governor's office on this. Um, obviously, the governor heard their feedback and took that into consideration with his April 2nd shelter-in-place order that was the statewide um, standard. So again, on all of these choices, any elected official at a statewide level, um, you're going to have a, a vocal um, opposition to anything you do. Um, and in terms of this, it seems that at the beginning, they wanted local control um, or they wanted a statewide standard rather at the beginning, and now they would like local control back. Again, moving forward, um, there's no playbook on this. Um, we started out um, in a position letting local governments decide how best to interact with their communities in terms of this pandemic. Um, and after a couple of weeks of, of seeing how that worked across the state, um, we thought there were some legal issues with some of the things that locals were doing. So, again, we took their feedback and saying we need a statewide standard, and we did that with the April 2nd order. Is there a plan to treat hotspots like Albany any differently, or, or perhaps if, if some another hotspot was to bubble up, is there a way to, to let them enact more local restrictions? Sure. So we're looking into that now. Um, we've actually been looking into it for over a week now in terms of what to do about some of these hotspots. Again, well, some of the DPH data that, they're, um, that they have on the website now, um, in terms of the regional data, looking at Albany and the surrounding counties, it actually is, is, is trending in the right direction. Um, so some of the things that they've been doing, in, in addition to the governor's April 2nd shelter-in-place order, are working. Um, we, we feel like Phoebe Putney, the hospital down there, in addition to the surrounding hospitals, are in a better place um, in terms of bed capacity than they were, um, and we've continued to ramp up testing in those areas. Um, so, again, we're going to continue right. to monitor those situations going into the future. Uh, Cody, we got to let you go. Um, yes, sir. But uh, appreciate your coming on the show. I, you know, as I listen to our conversation unfold, I think um, we're going to find out in the weeks ahead, uh, just what all of this means. There's no question that with public health officials on both sides of this issue, uh, whether it's our state or other states across the country who decide to start reopening for business in limited ways, uh, whether this roll of the dice uh, it helps us get back to work, puts people back uh, to their, gives them their jobs back, the chance to earn a living, or whether we end up with a viral spread that uh, continues for, for a period of time that we had hoped it would not. So uh, that's about the best thing we can say as we look at what's happening here in Georgia. But, Cody, thank you so much for joining us today. Absolutely, Bill. And thanks, Tamar. Thank you.
Um, let's do this. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about a parallel pandemic in 1918, the Spanish flu pandemic. We'll be joined by uh, Stan Deaton, who is the senior historian at the Georgia Historical Society. And of course, Tamar will stay with us as well. This is Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Welcome back to Political Rewind. Tamar Hallerman, senior reporter at the AJC, remains with us. And Stan Deaton, down in Savannah with the Georgia Historical Society, senior historian there. Thank you for being with us today, Stan. Glad to have you here. My pleasure, Bill. Thank you. Sure. All right, so let's talk pandemics. I I want to start very briefly. Uh, I, there was a terrific uh, piece in The New Yorker uh, just last week uh, written by Elizabeth Colbert, who goes back and looks at the history of pandemics and just to show us that, that this, this is a, not a new phenomenon in any sense of the word. Uh, the first pandemic, she tells us, or what's often thought of as the first pandemic, uh, happened in northeastern Egypt, Port Said, in the year 541. Uh, and it was a disease that spread toward Alexandria, toward Palestine, and it kept on going uh, across the Middle East. And uh, the symptoms of it were horrifying. Uh, they, they, they looked like bubonic plague symptoms, lumps uh, in the groin, under the arms. Um, suffering was terrible. Some people went into comas had violent deliriums. Many people were vomiting blood. They were in a state of constant exhaustion. Um, so, I mean, go back all that distance in history and find that humanity has dealt with pandemics for many, many centuries. But what we're going to talk about today is the pandemic of 1918, which is often referred to as the Spanish flu epidemic. Could we start by saying, Stan, and you probably know this, Every time we've mentioned Spanish flu on this show, we've had people who have said, well, you're 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 being you're saying derogatory things about the Spanish people. This wasn't a Spanish influenza. And of course, it wasn't. Would you you, can you help us understand that, please, Stan? (laughs) Yes, sure. Yeah. Unfortunately, Spain had the the misfortune to be the, the first country to really report outbreak of the flu in in large numbers and. I, I believe the Spanish king uh, unfortunately got the flu. And so it, it, it was labeled the Spanish flu, for better or for worse. Uh, many scholars think it probably originated actually in the United States. Wherever it originated, yeah. of course, it spread like wildfire. But unfortunately, it's been labeled in history the Spanish flu, as you say. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Tamar, because uh, World War I was underway, uh, and most of the countries in Europe which were hit by the pandemic were uh, unwilling to talk about it openly because they thought it would weaken their positions in the war. Spain was neutral in, in, in the war, and so they didn't have any reason not to report out figures on it, and they got stuck with that name. But you wrote this uh, weekend about parallels between 
what we're seeing today and what we saw in Georgia back in 1918. Tamara, start us off by talking about when we first discovered the flu here, where it was, and how it, how it developed. Sure. So in, in the U.S., it was attributed to a lot of soldiers returning home from the, the trenches in World War One, And military camps, where a lot of these soldiers came home and, and congregated, were, were kind of the perfect <laughs> the perfect place for this to spread quickly. Um, you had a lot of young men, all within close quarters of one another. And in Georgia, it was first reported near Augusta at Camp Hancock. Um, and very soon, we saw reports of this near Metro Atlanta in Camp Gordon, which was on the site of what's now the the DeKalb Peachtree Airport. And going through our amazing archives at the Atlanta Constitution, we found in the September 18th, 1918 edition, um, a report about how an entire regiment was placed under quarantine within days of returning to the camp from, they were were at a rifle range in in Norcross and they were starting to exhibit symptoms. So uh, they locked them up in quarantine and it, it spread very quickly from there. You know, Stan, one of the things we we can talk about a lot of the parallels, one of the parallels between then and now is that um, when the flu first hit the United States, um, the uh, federal government basically put out word through its public health officials that this was really nothing but another, uh, it was the grip. It was nothing to worry about. Everybody would be fine. There's no reason to panic. A very clear parallel with what we saw in the early days of uh, the the virus here. Yeah, it really hit in two ways. In the spring of 1918, what was generally accepted to be just a standard flu sort of went around. It was not a killer in the same way. And then it went into remission somehow over the summer and then came roaring back in September of that year. And um, you did have a not, you didn't have a federal response, and and strangely enough, as I as I have mentioned before, there was no World Health Organization, there's no Centers for Disease Control, uh, and so states and, and municipalities were sort of left on their own to deal with this on a case by case basis, and it didn't take long for them all to be absolutely overwhelmed in the fall. Um. And yet the United States escaped the worst of it in terms of deaths, didn't we? I think there were far more deaths in in the rest of the world than we had here in this country. And Georgia, in some ways, was lucky, too. Yeah, I think that we can all accept that the numbers in the United States were probably underreported. Scholars estimate that probably 675,000 Americans died, which is a staggering number when you think about it. Uh, But in India, for instance, 12.5 million died. Uh, I think that that can be attributed probably to underreporting, but also because I think most communities immediately went into quarantine, or at least did at some point. They realized that they had to limit contact in order. And some communities self-quarantined, put up signs and said, keep driving, don't stop here, that sort of thing. So, uh, Tamar, how did uh, officials here in Atlanta first respond when Camp Gordon was discovered to uh, have infections? Sure. So, as you mentioned, you know, the federal government kind of passed a lot of the responsibilities to state and local governments. You saw the U.S. Surgeon General urge state health officials to consider things like social distancing. And then immediately you saw the state's top health official say that, no, it's to be up to localities, not the state to make their own decision. Um, And pretty quickly, within about three weeks of the cases first being announced at, at Camp Gordon near Atlanta, you saw Atlanta's health official 
move pretty quickly. That same day on October 7th, he issued an order shutting down movie theaters, schools, churches, dance halls, pools, billiard halls for two months. Um, and immediately the city council came in right behind him and, and did the same thing. Um, so you saw even regulations that all trolleys were directed to keep their windows open at all times because they believed fresh air would, uh, would help kind of stop the virus in its tracks. So you saw things pretty quickly kind of come to a screeching halt, just like we did, um, you know, in, in March here in the state of Georgia. But what's interesting about that is that we didn't really understand viruses in 1918 the way we do today. And Stan, you're I, I were, I'm FaceTiming with you all, so I see you nodding when I say that. Uh, it, and yet we did adopt social distancing practices back then without any real understanding of, 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 of a virus and how it spread. I think that what made this virus so uh, frightening for a lot of people, they understood on some basic level that um, this could be spread by human contact without really understanding what it did. And you have to remember that there were no mechanical ventilators. And so literally victims of this flu drowned in their own fluids. Their, their lungs filled up with fluid. So it was a horrible death without really understanding what, how that worked. But at the same time, and you were talking about businesses closing, I think it's also important to remember there's no mechanism for unemployment then. People who didn't work simply didn't get paid. There was no federal unemployment insurance. There was no state unemployment. And so businesses that shut down, simply people were, were really – this was a hardship. So you, you had compounded the economic misery, the medical mystery of all of this, the sense that it seemed to be a death sentence. People died sometimes within hours. They would get sick in the morning and be dead by that night. So I think the climate of fear that was involved in this is, was also something we really have to consider. Yeah, but, but what was pretty amazing, as I, I interviewed Stan for my story, and just uh, they did not really know what a virus was. They wouldn't know until the 1930s. They wouldn't have microscopes for another decade or so. But still, mm -hmm. they had a basic understanding of germs and the benefits of good hygiene. A lot of things we're familiar with now, things like, you know, if you cough, don't cough on your hands. Cough into the crook of your arm. If you're, if you're not feeling well, stay home. They understood all of that. They even understood social distancing, which they called breaking the channels of communication. Um, and pretty quickly after we saw the initial outbreak at Camp Gordon near Atlanta, there, there was a call for nurses from Atlanta to, to come up and help the cause. A, a lot of the doctors were on the front in World War I, so, um, you know, the, the medical infrastructure was just desperate for people. Um, and, and so we saw a lot of makeshift field hospitals pop up. Um, and as Stan told me, you know, a lot of what they were doing was treating symptoms, right? Because they, they didn't have a ton of, they didn't have ventilators. They didn't have a ton of things to, to kind of truly take care of folks. There were no, there wasn't a vaccine for this or, or anything like that to help. Yeah. In fact, they, they, a lot of people thought this was a bacteria. It wasn't, um, they couldn't treat pneumonia and, uh, there were no intensive care units. So really all you could do was treat the symptoms. And so, uh, I, I do think that they did have some basic understanding, obviously, uh, but it would be 1933 before they could isolate this. And, of course, the other thing about this that was different from previous flu epidemics is that it hit the age 20 to 40 group very hard. Usually you saw flu data that was U-shaped. It hit the population under five and the population over 65. This one was decimating normally healthy adults who were 20 to 40 years old. And that compounded the mystery, the misery, and the difficulty in dealing with this. 
And as Tamar mentioned, so many of the medical personnel were enlisted in the Army, which was still – World War One was still going strong. You know, um, it's fascinating to me to look back historically at this because um, right now we're watching this scramble go on. Uh, we have a novel coronavirus, uh, and, and uh, so public health officials – Uh, Doctors, researchers are desperately trying to unravel the mystery of this virus, to understand it, how to find a a vaccine that will prevent it. So we're seeing this unfold in real time. But this is something that through history um, we've watched in other pandemics as well. And Stan, I was really taken by a video that you passed on to me. You You did a video in which you recommended a book that you had read some time ago about the black death. And I think it's this was in, what, 1340, 1350 in Europe? Is that about the right time frame? That's, yeah, that's correct, the middle of the 14th century. Mm-hmm. But, but here's what's fascinating to me about that. Um, it killed millions of, of people, and no one had any idea at all of how it was spreading. And it wasn't for several hundred years before uh, researchers were able to pinpoint what had caused that illness to spread and continue spreading in in other forms for hundreds of years, right? What was it? That's exactly right. It was not until it was almost 500 or 400 years. Uh, the Black Death had been around even before uh, 1340, but between 1347 and 1350, it really decimated the population of Western Europe. It traveled along transportation routes. Uh, scholars estimate 200 million people died, um, which the population didn't recover from that for several centuries. And it wasn't until the 1880s that they identified the fleas on the black rat as being the carrier of the bubonic plague. And to your point where you started this whole conversation, it's been a long time, really 100 years since Americans have had to, or really any of us, have had to deal with what it is like in a pandemic. And um, it, that was the norm for centuries. Uh, It's not the norm to go as long as we have. I think that speaks to our medical uh, community and and the the great things that science has done. But we are not used to giving up our freedom and giving up our community. It's very difficult for us. Even in this age in which we can be plugged into each other as we are right now, it's still difficult. And I think Georgians and Americans struggled with this 102 years ago, just as we're struggling with it now. Because it hasn't been the norm. Um, yeah, I th- yeah, I th- you know what? Let's do this. Uh, let's get our second break of the show out of the way. When we come back, uh, I, Tamara, uh, I want to talk more about the article that you wrote because you uncovered some interesting little facts and pieces of information that we should talk about in terms of that Spanish flu epidemic of 1918. So we'll do that after we pause for these messages. <laughs> Tamar Hellerman, just uh, if you don't mind my reading from your article uh, about the uh, Spanish flu of 1918, doctors had a basic understanding of germs and the benefits of good hygiene. Georgians were urged to wash their hands, refrain from touching their face, observe proper, proper coughing etiquette, and stay home if they felt sick. Personal protective equipment was in short to supply. The October 4th, 1918 edition of the Constitution issued a call for female readers to make 100,000 influenza masks for Camp Gordon out of cheesecloths or similar materials. The local Red Cross opened workrooms for women to gather and sew the masks. 
At the time, the organization blocked many African-American women from volunteering, prompting some to organize their own efforts. Uh, It's astonishing, uh, I would hope, with the exception of African-American women being shut out, to, to read the parallels to today. Yeah, so many. You know, the the Atlanta Constitution was even posting, just like I've seen online in recent days, here's how to make a mask. Here's here's sewing instructions. At the same time, just to see how much time's changed. You know, the headline specifically said, we are looking for women to sew these masks. Please consider sewing them. So um, things are the same, but they're also kind of different, too. So um, here's another parallel that's really important, and it's especially important today, I think, uh, on the uh, day after the governor has issued his uh, decision that people should uh, begin to, at least in limited ways, uh, reopen their businesses. Uh, Stan, the pressure to reopen businesses back in 1918 in Georgia and in the city of Atlanta was immense. Uh, The mayor at the time was Asa Candler, he was pushing hard for uh, Atlanta. He wanted his public health officials, his uh, public health board, to uh, agree to allow businesses to get back in it to uh, work. And um, there was a huge fight over whether to do that or not. Uh, and and in fact, they eventually did reopen. But like we're facing today, there was great controversy over it. Yeah, they're they're obviously, uh, as Cody pointed out, the elected officials are in a very bad spot. They're getting enormous pressure then and now, obviously, economically to open things back up, while at the same time opening themselves up to enormous criticism if things don't go in the right way. And in 1918, of course, as I mentioned, there is no social safety net at all. It was not uncommon to see uh, swaths of homeless children on the streets whose parents had died. They simply had nowhere to go, particularly in larger cities on the East Coast, New York and Philadelphia. Um, you saw this frequently. And so there's enormous pressure uh, on elected officials to sort of get things back to normal. At the same time, there weren't enough coffins to go around. Um, there weren't crews to dig graves. So the paradoxes that were in, that everyone could see um, and, and as Tamar mentioned, everyone's wearing a mask. But as one commentator said, in the, in the end, a scientist said it was like wearing chicken wire in a dust storm. It really didn't matter um, because this thing was so virulent and so easily passed from person to person. So there was a lot of factors at play, and they were grappling in the dark, really. It was an almost impossible situation. And um... – you know, what What was interesting going through our archives was seeing there was more organized opposition last time, specific to an industry. Um, you know, initially, the movie theaters mentioned they were kind of okay with closing, you know, okay, fine for the time being. But then at some point, uh, city officials greenlit, there, there was a, a big fair going on, the Southeastern Fair, uh, which ended up attracting more than 20,000 people. And officials decided they were going to let this fair happen because it was outdoors and they thought outdoors would kind of help help people recuperate as long as they wore masks, it was fine. It ended up attracting a ton of people, as I mentioned. And all of a sudden, the theater owners say, hey, 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 you know, if this, if this fair was allowed to go on, why can't people come into our theaters? So they organized and, and put a ton of pressure on the mayor and other city officials. And, you know, the, the city initially said they were going to close all of these businesses for two months. But after two and a half weeks, they ended up relenting to that pressure. Well, and what's interesting about that, Tamar, is um, they it was on, what, October 25th of 1918, 
that they allowed public gatherings to resume. And what's worth thinking about as we uh, face reopening of some businesses now is that we had the flu here uh, well into the next year. It did not go away anytime soon. Yeah, it ended up uh, declining for a little bit, new flu cases, but then spiked with a vengeance closer to Thanksgiving and through the winter. Uh, But despite the pressure, local officials here in Atlanta just decided they didn't want to approve a new set of of sweeping restrictions. Um, And it'll be interesting to see, you know, in these times, if the governor will feel um, like he has to change this order that he announced last night to to relent on some of these restrictions, if there are new hotspots that emerge. Stan, um, one of the other people quoted in uh, Tamar's article is a Georgia State University history professor, Timothy Crimmins. And and he talks about it from the perspective, I think, of, you know, in those days, here's Georgia, Atlanta particularly, uh, always thinking business first, you know, were the city too busy to hate. That came along much later. Nevertheless, the sentiment was the same uh, earlier in the century. And Crimmins uh, points out that uh, Atlanta wanted to promote itself as a healthy city that wasn't susceptible to the, quote, yellow fever that devastated coastal cities in the South. And and so business, always business, a, a primary concern despite the public health risks. Yeah. I mean, especially in Atlanta, you know, this is just on the at the dawn of air travel. This is about to come to Atlanta. Um, there's always a sense, as Tamar said, they had a basic idea of cleanliness. So the idea was if your city uh, practice good hygiene, good sanitation, without really understanding exactly what caused things like yellow fever. And by then they did know what caused yellow fever, mosquitoes and that sort of thing that um, Atlanta was not going to be. And a lot of cities felt this way that they were not going to be susceptible to these sorts of things, that they could control it. Um, And so, you know, there's so many parallels in terms of what's happening. Um, So, Tamar, uh, there's another kind of interesting, there's a couple of other little tidbits that I think are fascinating that uh, your article points out. One of them is uh, the emergence of a product which had been a regional product until the Spanish flu hit. Yeah, this is one of my favorite tidbits from my reporting. Um, so initially, Vicks VapoRub was a, a kind of regional product. It came out of North Carolina and spread across the southeast. So, so it was primarily used North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia, up until the 1918 flu pandemic. Um, and then you saw it spread like wildfire all around the, the country to help with some of the symptoms. And on its website, you know, the, the company said it saw its sales triple between 1918 and 1919. And what's pretty amazing, even today during the coronavirus, they're careful to say this is not a cure or anything, but it might, again, help with some of the symptoms from the coronavirus. So a pretty amazing parallel between the Spanish flu and the, the coronavirus now. And, and Bill, it the other uncommon. thing that I thought was. Yeah, go ahead, Stan. No, I was going to say it wasn't uncommon for people to wear things around their necks that had turpentine or something that gave off a strong odor, which actually did a couple of things. People thought that the odor itself, it might be the air around them, that this would counteract bad air. But what it also ended up doing inadvertently or on purpose was it kept people apart from each other because you smelled (laughs) so bad that you just (laughs) kept your distance, which, you know, it's probably something we should think about doing now when things begin to reopen. Yeah. 
Well, actually, and tomorrow, to pick up on what Stan said, there were other circumstances that kept people apart from each other uh, in 1918. Um, one of them is that um, there were power shortages in Atlanta, uh, largely because of the military's demand for hydroelectric power from a dam on the uh, Tallulah River. And as a result of that, there were brownouts in Atlanta, which forced theaters, streetcar systems, elevators to shut down and kept people from being as close to one another. And there, there's a reason to believe that that, in fact, was one of the reasons that Atlanta didn't have the deaths that happened in other cities. Exactly. So even after the city was reopened in October 1918, a lot of folks were kept in their houses. You know, some of these movie houses were able to stay open for a couple hours a day, but it wasn't you know, at full capacity. So that kept a lot of folks at home. Um, in general, Atlanta repo- reported a pretty low death count. Only about 830 Atlantans were reported to have died of the flu to the, the Census Bureau. Um, that's widely believed to be an undercount. Um, perhaps people, um, you know, didn't report it properly or said it was something else. But but also, like the GSU professor I talked to, he mentioned, you know, the city had an interest of showing they were healthy in order to attract businesses. So he thinks that was another reason why the, the death count was reported to be pretty low. But, yeah, the, the city might have been was saved rep- from this, this drought. Yeah. So, Stan, we're almost out of time. Um, mm-hmm. I call on you as a historian. When you think back to 1918, other pandemics, um, you make a point that, and maybe it's about America today, that um, we are very different people in terms of believing in our freedoms, uh, freedom of movement, that uh, we should not be hindered in any way. We don't understand. We think science has advanced to the point that anything that comes at us really can be taken care of quickly. With all that said, this is an astonishing wake-up call for all of us. It is. Uh, the generation that lived through the flu lived through World War One. They then lived through the Great Depression and World War II. They were called on to sacrifice, and I think that is what has been the most stunning thing. We're not used to sacrificing, right? When we, we fight wars now, whether it be Vietnam or in Afghanistan or in Iran, and we just go about our business. Uh, in fact, you remember the president— uh, President Bush encouraged Americans to get out and shop, not sacrifice. And right now, what we've been called on to do for the last month and, and who knows how long in the future is to sacrifice, whether it's our community, whether it's our job, whether it's going out and doing what we want to. We haven't done that in a very long time in this country, and we think we're beyond the things that our ancestors dealt with. Something like this happens, and we realize we're not, and this could very likely happen again. It brings the past into the present in a very stark way. Well, Stan Deaton, thank you very much for joining us and for those final words especially. Um, we appreciate your being uh, with us today. Stay safe down there in Savannah. Tamar Hellerman, always a pleasure to have you on Tuesdays. Join me for Political Rewind. Um, that's it for our show today. Back, We're back tomorrow. Tomorrow we're going to go back to our roots again. We're going to do a political show. What's happening in the 2020 presidential, Senate Congressional races, uh, we'll talk about those with uh, those issues with our panel and uh, look forward to seeing you for that show then. In the meantime, all of you out there, stay safe.